All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. It is a very cold day here in Baltimore. (laughs) I am not thrilled about that. Uh, Walking to my car, they got in. It was like 20 some degrees and that wasn't fun. But uh, my heart was strangely warmed when I remembered (laughs) that today I got to have a podcast. (laughs) Uh interview uh with a new friend and so with me today is bradley onishi bradley how's it going going good um i i feel for you my uh my co-host uh at my podcast uh lost power he's up in uh massachusetts and they were like minus whatever wind chill and all that business so i know it's cold oh, in the shit. east coast right now yeah <laughs> yeah that, that i feel you know that's way worse than than how it is here so he definitely has it worse well Whatever New Englanders, so yeah. you know, I still, I, my, my wife's family's from New England, so they always think they oh, have right it on. worse no matter what happens. Yeah, you know what I mean? so, yeah. <laughs> man. Well, um, again, welcome to uh, Rethinking Faith and and thanks for hanging out. Um, I, yeah, I, I had picked up a, well, first, I, I came across your work, um, with you know, interacting with a, a buddy Tim of mine from the New Evangelicals. Um, and then I had seen, you know, straight white American Jesus, um, you know, in a lot of some of the similar circles uh, that Rethinking Faith swims in. And so I picked up a, a copy of, of your book, Preparing for War, and I really enjoyed it. And so I'm uh, I'm excited to to have a conversation with you about it. Yeah, thanks for reading. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I guess just before we kind of hop into that. Uh, for people who maybe aren't familiar with yourself, uh, your work, or you know, straight white American Jesus, whatever, um, I would love just to to kind of you know help people hear a little bit about yourself, uh, your story, and what kind of stuff you find yourself doing. Yeah, so I um, former evangelical minister. Uh, I converted when I was fourteen. I'm from Southern California, so I converted at like a mega church, um, and quickly kind of went from a punk kid to like just super youth group 
uh, Golden Star person, um, was part of ministry by the time I graduated high school and then was full-time youth minister uh, after my second year of, of college, got married then and was like getting ready for seminary. Um, but, you know, I started reading a lot. Um, I'm a, I'm a professor now. And so I, I got really into like theology and philosophy and history. And that really sort of exposed me to different forms of faith and different forms of Christianity and, uh, started to really rethink some things as, you know, apropos, uh, this show and, um, you know, some political events popped up that really kind of made me question the the very stark worldview of evangelicalism that I had been brought up in. And I, I went over to England for graduate school and ended up um, just totally deconstructing and became a religion professor. So I still study all of this stuff, including Christianity from medieval mystics to, you know, the early church to uh, contemporary American, you know, Christian nationalism. But, um, you know, things are a lot different than they used to be when I was when I was in my my teens and 20s. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. So just a little bit about me as well. I used to, uh, also I used to be a pastor. Yeah. Um, I now make beer. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit different, uh, but I really enjoy it. And, um, for me, you know, the kind of catalyst, that kind of caused my uh, deconstruction and ultimately me leaving ministry had less to do with um, like Christian nationalism or hell or something like that. And more so it was actually just really shitty experience working in the church with like yeah. abusive pastors and stuff. Not fun. Yep. yep. Um, and then like <laughs> some of the, the, you know, other stuff came later Um but Christian nationalism has been something that I've been interested in since uh, college. So I went to a private Christian school called Messiah yep. University. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so they kind of have some like, you know, more like Anabaptist leanings. Yep. yep. And so that's where I was first introduced to the idea and kind of had it like, hey, this is not cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was kind of my experience. And I think I'm trying to remember uh, growing up, uh, we did, we kind of bounced around from churches. We were in a Southern Baptist church for a bit, but like got kicked out of that. Cause you know, my brother came out and they were like, well, you can't hang out here anymore. So family left that church. I uh, ended up, you know, at a few different non-denominational churches, none of them like overtly or overly, uh, nationalistic per se. Although yeah. the, um, some of the more subtle, aspects yeah. definitely were there um although i can remember in surprisingly enough a methodist church that we attended for a little bit uh when i was much younger um like singing basically like america songs i don't know what yeah. you call them but like yeah. hymns and stuff uh around fourth of july and like marching military people down the aisle and stuff that was my closest <laughs> to like the most overt uh bit for me I, you know, I think one of the things you said there is actually really important, which is that it's really subtle. And I think when people think of Christian nationalism, they often think of like militias and, you know, these churches where people have like AR-15s and are just, you know, wearing the American flag while they preach from the pulpit and all this stuff. And I really think that it's actually better if we think about it in terms of um, the, the, the very unsaid ways that people affirm um, Christian nationalism. So like, if we think of Christian 
Catholicism as just the, if the desire to privilege Christianity in the United States, right? Just privilege it, right? So like, hey, of course, non-Christians can be here. Of course, non-white Christians can be here. Of course, uh, gay people can be here. But they need to know that Christianity in our version of it is going to be like privileged. And then if they accept their role as like secondary or, or tertiary, then it's all good. Like it's, it's fine. Of course. No, I mean, yeah. Jews, Muslims, non-religious, gay, bisexual. Great. Yeah. Just realize Christianity is, is the thing. And if, as long as it's sort of on top, then we're good. And, and it's only when it gets like upside down in their mind that they get upset and irritated and angry. And so I, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is those subtle forms can be um, hard to notice, but they are, they are really powerful. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. And I think, um, for, so when I was still preaching, I remember the, uh, subtleness kind of, um, you know, coming to the, the top of the table, so to speak, that I, I don't that's not even a saying i don't know what i'm trying to say it, <laughs> it became not subtle any longer <laughs> uh whenever um i so like i was always big on like kingdom of god kind of stuff um and so whenever i would preach about that i would talk about um how like basically as a christian our allegiances to the kingdom of god and like you know other allegiances us whatever secondary and i preached similar things along those lines really close uh to election season during the like uh Trump Biden stuff. Yeah. Yep. And very quickly uh it was interesting to have conversations with people after those sermons. Um it, yeah, because I was, you know, like oh well like obviously you don't actually love America. Um or you know, I would get a lot like, oh, well, you very clearly like you're a Biden supporter. You're very clearly a Trump supporter. I'd get the same, you know, comments from from one yeah. sermon or something like that. Yeah. Um, And it was weird and interesting because that church was like a very. uh, They their main focus was trying to have a genuinely diverse church that didn't um, that wasn't just like all white people up and such and the congregation yeah. was like genuinely diverse like ethnically socioeconomically um we would sing in different languages people wore traditional clothing yeah and so it was nice. really interesting to see that kind of stuff even in a place um that prided itself on things like diversity still the subtlety like coming to the top once yeah. it actually became talked about yep um, so it was like an interesting experience well, I, and I, I just love that example because I think what you're pointing to is like, hey, here's a congregation that's really in some ways trying, right? Like it is diverse across various uh, domains. Uh, I mean, people wear, wearing, you know, different kinds of garb, uh, singing in different languages. That's rare. You know, that's, that's, let's just be clear. But, but I think what you're pointing to is something that's really insightful, which is like when push came to shove, right? When the, when the cards were down, when it was time to choose, there was always going to be a choice of like, well, we really do need to protect America and protecting Christianity means protecting it. You know what I mean? And it all kind of comes out, you know what I mean? And so I think that's, that's where I'm at a lot of times with Christian nationalism is people want me to talk about like militias and, and people storming the Capitol and we should, don't get me wrong. But I also want to talk about the person that um, is uncomfortable if the president isn't a Christian or the person who's uncomfortable if 
um, you know, a black Muslim is in Congress or, you know what I mean? Like that's Christian nationalism, whether or not you are storming the Capitol or not, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think you, you like, I don't know, you make that point in, in your book, uh, as well. And I think it's, it's made like helpful to kind of think about almost as like a spectrum. Cause if I remember correctly, you, you know, you talked about how, there are, you know, the obvious people like the January 6th kind of stuff, or you just have like the very kind, you know, sweet old man who's been attending this church uh, for 60 years is on the board of trustees. Um, and, you know, you ask to remove the American flag from stage and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like this, this spectrum, it doesn't have to be. Um, yeah. Like you said, so in your, in your face, although. Um, I think what is interesting is that uh, currently it seems like, uh, at least like on the news and such, which I know is not always the <laughs> the greatest, but um, the like Christian nationalism is becoming less of a subtle thing. It's not being denied anymore. It's actually being embraced and and just yeah, we're Christian nationalists. Deal with it. <laughs> it's well, interesting to me. And I, and I think that's worth talking about, right? So, you know, you'll hear Marjorie Taylor Greene say that, or you'll hear Sean Foyd or someone like that say it, right? And and what here's what they're going to tell you. Well, I'm a Christian and I'm I'm a patriot. What's wrong with that? Okay. And what I'm what I'm going to say to that is, look, Christian nationalism is not about loving your country and it's not even it's not about being a Christian. It's about the idea that Christianity should be privileged in the public square, that this should be a Christian nation. And that somehow, right, the Christian American is uh, given a place that is uh, somehow superior when it comes to economics, politics, culture. So there are so many ways to be a Christian and an American. And in fact, there are so many Christians who are like, you know what? The most patriotic thing I can do and support is, is the separation of church and state, is fighting Christian nationalism. And, you know, this goes back to what you talked about with the Mennonites. The, you know, the, I, I think a lot of Mennonite voices have been really key during the last six years because, you know, Mennonite theology really has built into it this suspicion of empire, right? The suspicion of power, political power. And, you know, I remember sitting and having lunch with a Mennonite professor one time and, you know, he referred to Washington, D.C. as like Babylon, you know? And, uh, you know, people may take issue with that or whatever, but I guess my point is like, you know, your experience with that Mennonite context really points to all of the Christians who are like, Christian nationalism is an abomination. They're, the best way to love your country as a Christian is to want separation of church and state and to want to disentangle Christianity rather than make it more intimate with the government, you know? And so uh, anyway, I think that's all of that is just really important in, in the way you you talked about it. Yeah, sweet. The, I think... Uh... I don't know. I feel kind of lucky that I had some of the run-ins that I did um, at Messiah um, because, again, for me, all of the kind of like Christian nationalism type stuff that I was, you know, uh, more engaged with or whatever was very subtle and not in your face, except sometimes. And even then, as like a kid, it felt weird to me that we're like doing the American flag thing in the sanctuary, like walking it down the aisle. Um, but it didn't it didn't seem like nefarious or something like that. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. And then, so like, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful for my time at Messiah. Cause it really did kind of open, you know, open my eyes. I'm, I got connected, like you're saying to like more Mennonite 
theology, the Anabaptisty kind of stuff. Um, I read like Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd, and yep. you know, became like an annoying like you know how young Calvinists get about stuff. I was like that, <laughs> except about that kind of stuff. <laughs> but like, but you know, I think it's worth pointing out for a minute, right? That okay, so you grow up like so many people with these subtle forms of Christian nationalism, like they're going to march the American flag down the, the church aisle. Okay. And uh, so many of us had those experiences and nothing seemed nefarious. It was, as you said, it was just like, well, yeah, you know, uh, get the American flag up there that belongs there. And I remember being like college age. Right. And wondering like, why do we think America is our priority? I thought the kingdom of God was universal. And I thought the kingdom of God was about the entire, you go into the entire world. Matthew 28 says, but, the thing that is really catching my attention with your story is that it took an explicitly anti-Christian nationalist theology to help you see it. Like the Mennonites and the Anabaptists are like pretty uh, equipped to make people see the Christian nationalism in the water that they're in, right? But most places aren't. And most places, even if they're not super hardcore nationalist uh, uh, colleges or universities or churches... They don't have the tools to point it out and they don't have the theology to point it out. So people rarely see it. You, you see what I'm saying? So like, like the Anabaptist or the Mennonite uh, thing is, uh, is really important because it's, and it's explicitly training you to see Christian nationalism. Most, you know, most contexts are not, and that's why it goes unnoticed. And it kind of also goes unchecked as something that's nefarious. Like people don't think of it as dangerous when it is, you know what I mean? Yeah, big time. Um, I have some follow-up question for that, and then I def I want to dive into some of the history too to kind of give people sure. some some context of, as to what we're talking about. But um, I have a buddy of mine, uh, Dan Koch, and um, Dan made an observation, and I'm sure he pulled it from somewhere else or from a few other voices. Uh, but I'd love to hear your opinion. Um, he kind of pointed out that there's been a shift in uh america where before there was a time where people's theology um impacted or influenced rather their politics like politics flowed downstream from theology or religious conviction yeah. and now um that actually seems to be flipped where theology from a sociological perspective is flowing downstream from politics yeah and I'm interested just as somebody who studies this stuff, uh, what you think? Yeah, I so I understand what what your friend is saying there. And I think it's it I, I, I think the point that uh, they're making is is important, which is to say that in the Trump years and you know the last six years as a whole, I think it's become patently obvious to many people that politics is the is really the guiding factor that theology and doctrine are really just not the 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 engine right politics whether it's abortion immigration whether it's policing whether it's um you know gender and sexuality these are the issues that christians seem to care about not you know the resurrection or the trinity or uh soteriology or ecclesiology or whatever right so i i get this sentiment i think the only thing that makes me pause is to say that Politics and religion have always been entangled in a very complex relationship, and it's never been one or the other pushing uh, the rock up the hill. It's never been politics pushes religion or religion pushes politics. Um, we can go to the early church and say that there were 
you know, political uh, context in in a occupied Palestine and an occupied Israel that shaped Peter's discourse in Acts chapter eight. We can talk about Saint Augustine writing in fourth century North Africa. We could talk about the beginnings of Mennonite, you know, theology and community, you know, a couple hundred years ago. So, I that's my only caution is don't think that there was a time when people are like, I'm a Christian, and that that determines my politics. What I would argue is that people have always had this really complex relationship where their politics influences their religion, their religion influences their politics, and you can never really get them distilled and separate. Like you're a brewer, right? Like you know when you start brewing, you've got your ingredients, you've got your yeast and everything else, and you could like sort of point us to where those ingredients all all sort of meshed in the process and created, you know, the beer that someone's going to drink. I'm not sure you can actually do that with politics and religion. Pulling them apart, it's just it's they've always been married and that relationship may change, but it's not one that's ever been disentangled. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I like it. Uh I like the nuance of it. And also I think yeah. I mean, it's just true, um, especially too when you like think about how people's, uh, you know, like psychologically, people are like have predisposed, like you know, to different ways of thinking or feeling or being in the world. Like some people just seem to be more hardwired to think more conservatively, other people more progressively. Um, yeah, and so all of that stuff just kind of coming together makes sense. Cool thinking out well and i like and i think with the hardwiring you know i hear you on that right and i i think there's a lot of good work in neuroscience and others that shows us that but you know i'll give you an example my um like i said my family my wife's family's up in in massachusetts and massachusetts is sort of historically like a, a liberal state you know john kennedy and all this stuff and massachusetts for a long time has had um uh, mass public health like if if you need health care and you can't afford it there's a state health care option and a lot of my wife's family are are pretty like just working class. Um, they go to the folks, they go to work in the morning, they come home, work at night, nothing fancy, nothing bourgeois, nothing, you know, no, no cocktail parties. And, you know, it's just a very like, you know, salt of the earth kind of life. And they, many of them, I think are folks who lean conservative in terms of just the way they live and their thinking. But because of the culture they grew up in, where they were just sort of like, they learned you know, from, from decades that, yeah, like people should have health insurance. I don't know. Like you never hear them say, oh, stupid, you know, state insurance, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I guess what I'm getting at is like, there are ways that we're hardwired, but we can also be molded and we can also be formed depending on like the culture we're in. And I think that's like, that means it's not a given, it's not a fate, you know, that you have to be given over to a certain belief or or policy or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Always, always, uh, always the nuance. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so I was trying to think like what the best entrance point, uh, to some of the historical aspects would be, because I think for a lot of people, they have a similar experience, uh, to you where the election of, um, Donald Trump kind of like, what the heck is going on? Um, I know a lot of listeners on this show kind of share that. Yeah, because um, they they felt almost betrayed. Like I grew up as a Christian, and like all the stuff that you told us we should do, like this seems very opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm trying to figure out the best way to kind of uh, enter into that conversation because 
and I'm like, you showed, you know, you show this in your book, like Trump wasn't some kind of weird accident, mm-hmm. but rather the culmination of something that's been happening for a very long time. And so I guess maybe it's a big and perhaps unfair question, but can we maybe just try to trace some of the major points in history yeah. that kind of, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's start in the sixties, right? <clears throat> so we got the 1960s and in the 1960s, you have a bunch of things happening. The civil rights movement gets going, and we all know that that leads to the end of Jim Crow and segregated public spaces. Uh, We know that uh, we have a Voting Rights Act, which totally enables uh, African-Americans and others to vote without having to pay a poll tax or pass a test. Okay, this is a big deal. We have immigration reform. So we have a total change in how immigration happens in this country. And uh, this means a lot more immigrants from like Asia. Uh, and Latin America. 1963, the feminine mystique is published. So that really represents kind of women's uh, liberation and women entering the workforce in mass, uh, having uh, contraception available, uh, et cetera. Uh, there's also just ongoing movements for queer liberation, for the LGBT community to be represented, to have rights, to be safe, uh, and so on. Um the loving case in the Supreme Court is decided. So interracial marriage is like protected in every state. Like you, you can't not get married because you are of two different races. What's what what's the point? The 1960s changed a lot in this country. And a lot of us are like, yeah, for the good. Civil rights movement, like, you know, that's a good thing. Voting rights, yay. This is when so many white Christian nationalists were like, this is when we lost our country. This is when things got upside down. It's when things got backwards and it's when we decided we had to be really, really intentional about getting the country back from all these people that aren't real Americans. Or if they are Americans, they're kind of, they should be second or third. In 1964, Barry Goldwater is the GOP nominee for uh, for a president. And I know a lot of people listening, like, why are you talking about this? Come on, man. It's 1964. Give me a break. But here's what he says, right? Here's what he says. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So think about what he's saying there. Extremism is what you need to get your country back. And so if you take 1964 all the way to 2016, extremism was what you need to get your country back. That is the through line. Um, Let me give you another historical uh, example. In 1980, we have an election between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. So Jimmy Carter's like made in a lab to be like a white Christian president. He's like a he's like what AI would create, right? He's like born on a peanut farm in Georgia. He's like a Southern Baptist. He goes to church, Southern Baptist church, like the first Sunday he's alive. He marries his high school sweetheart. He's like still married to her. It's been like 75 years. Uh, he's a military officer. When his daddy dies, he goes home and takes over the farm. He teaches Sunday school. Like what more do you want from a white Christian president? And guess what? Jimmy Carter, when he was president from 1976 to 1980, he, or 1970, anyway, it doesn't matter. When he, he had it, uh, he put more women and people of color on the, on the judiciary, uh, on the, on the bench as judges than anyone before him. He was not an outright bigot when it came to the LGBT community. He was not somebody that was going to try to make abortion totally illegal and he was not into war. He wanted to be like a diplomat. He wanted to like solve international problems by way of like diplomacy and conversation. 
So you know what all the religious right did? White Christians, Catholics, and Protestants together? They voted for Ronald Reagan, a divorced Hollywood actor who was not really in a good relationship with his kids, who supported abortion when he was governor of California, and whose wife, Nancy, had an astrologist follow him around in the White House to give her advice. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in evangelical churches, astrology was not really looked uh, upon with great favor. What's my point? Ronald Reagan promised to do what they wanted when it came to like abortion and other stuff. So they chose him, not the guy who was made in a lab to be the like white Christian president. What does that tell me? Extremism is what you need. And we are going to choose power. We're not going to choose faith. And so when we get to 2016, man, that just comes roaring back. And so many folks like you, especially young folks are like, wait a minute, you guys are voting for the guy that does everything the opposite of what we learned in church. We're out of here. And so many young people are like, I'm not doing this anymore. And they, as you, as your show is about, they rethink their faith because their elders in their forties and fifties and sixties are like all in on Donald Trump, who seems to be the opposite of the Christianity they learned. So anyway, that's my very quick and dirty history. I can do more if you want, but yeah. Yeah, no, those, those were good. And I, I really, uh, so I was not, um, too aware of like the whole, like Carter Reagan yeah. bit, um, and that was really interesting to me, especially because, I mean, just the parallels are ridiculous <laughs> and you draw those parallels in your book. Um, and it just, I don't know that what, what struck me so, I guess, deeply about that was essentially, like you said, they had this like cookie cutter, perfect type person, but for whatever reason, they were like the wrong kind of Christian because yep. they weren't, they were a Christian that was like, not giving them power like you said it's, it seems too obvious uh in that and the the extremism stuff was really interesting too uh you talk about um a gentleman was it uh, goldwater yeah uh, yep that was my first time ever hearing about uh him as well and there's also some like very deep uh, parallels and connections uh between him and trump um that that you kind of outline in the book as well that i i found very helpful um, so Goldwater is this crazy. So, you know, I know some of you out there are like, you know, young people who are like, please don't tell me about this stuff, but just hang with me. Just <laughs> give important. me a minute. Right. So this guy, Barry Goldwater is crazy, right? He's, he's an Arizona Senator. Okay. And he really like makes himself out to be a cowboy. He's like that guy that shows up and he's like, got a cowboy hat on and he's like hyper-masculine. He's got like a super deep voice and like a square jaw. He's like that guy that tries to break your hand when he shakes your hand at church. You know what I mean? And you're like, okay. Barry, just let go. You don't have to try to break my hand. What are you doing? Right. And he always said these like really bombastic things. Like we're going to bomb, we're going to bomb Vietnam using nuclear weapons, you know? And he made himself out to be like a real, like everyday man. Like I'm a cowboy, like a real, you know, but he was born in like a hella rich family. Okay. So like, think about Donald Trump born to a hella rich family out here trying to tell people he's like every man's president when he has a gold toilet. Okay. He's like such Mr. Tough guy. Like, I'm going to break your hand when I shake it. And I'm like, I'm so tough, right? Just like Barry Goldwater. And I think one of the things that can get overlooked here is that Christian nationalism always wants a strong man like that, even if he's like a fake strong man, because they want someone that will bully the people who they consider to be second and third class citizens. They want somebody to be a barbarian, to take care of all those folks that are like exercising their rights like gay folks and black folks and other people of color and immigrants. 
they need a bully to put those people back in line. So they're really drawn to these like strong man, tough guys, not to Mike Pence or to, you know, all the, some of these other like more soft-spoken people like Jimmy Carter. And I think that really goes to your point about being the right kind of Christian. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, um, that kind of ties into at least, you know, you see a lot, like an example that comes to mind within like, uh, the church world was a character like Mark Driscoll. Yep. Whereas oh, yeah. like Driscoll, that's what he promotes and puts forth and even preaches as like, that is what it means to be Christian. Like the whole, if I can kick Jesus's ass, then he's not worthy of me worshiping him kind of thing. Yep. yep. No, I mean, <laughs> and then it's like very, I think it's, if that's what's being promoted in churches. And of course, when someone gets up and starts speaking as president or, you know, trying to become president, that seems like a, a connection as well. No, I mean, I and, and I think you're totally right that, you know, and, and you know, Kristen Kobe's Demay's book does a good job at this. There's a lot of books that really show us this, but like the the patriarchal and hyper masculinism of of church spaces primed people to vote for Donald Trump because they were told that Jesus was a tough guy, Jesus was a barbarian, Jesus was a guy that would beat somebody up. And for a lot of people reading the Sermon on the Mount, they're like, actually, don't. Really? Okay. I didn't see that part, but I'll I'll read it again. And one of the one of the th and this goes back to your comment about politics and politics and religion, right? I think there this is one point where we can we can say that evangelicals have had a deep and long habit of pointing to non-biblical sources to figure out what it means to be a man. You know what I mean? So, you know, whether they watch Braveheart, whether they watch, you know, some other film or some other have some other example it's like, tell me what it is to be a man. And it's not the Jesus who is being executed by the state. It's not Paul who's not married and uh, endures being jailed and beaten. It's not, you know, any of the martyrs like Stephen in the book of Acts. It's some guy in a movie made in Hollywood. How is that what it means to be a man? But again, all of that primes you to vote for Donald Trump and think he's a lot like Christ. Yeah, the, oh man, the whole, yeah, the patriarchy stuff um, is, is crazy to me. And I, like, I always had a hard time with that. I didn't really encounter people saying things like women can't be pastors or any of that kind of stuff um, until I was actually studying theology. Um, and I had this, I remember this weird experience, somebody trying to be like, yeah, women can't be pastors. And I was like, bro, I don't know what to tell you. Like, my pastor in the Methodist church growing up was a woman. Like yeah. clearly they can. <laughs> I I don't know what to tell you. Here's an yeah. example. Yep. So that like that was interesting. But then to uh start to see and study that, like that was another like just you know overt, oh my gosh, in my face kind of thing. Um and I think that that you know shows its face a lot um within the the nationalism stuff. And I think another aspect that really stood out to me in your book um, that also has either very obvious or more subtle forms is the racism stuff and the segregation stuff, especially when it came to uh, things like focus on the family, where <laughs> we're making these arguments saying that uh, Christian like family values are being attacked. Because you want to allow black kids to go to school with my white family. And that is against, you know, the God ordained traditional family unit. Yeah. And then so then to see that language still this almost verbatim used today 
was just like, holy crap, I didn't know about the 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 racial undertones that have been present since the beginning. So, you know, a lot of people think like uh, evangelical family values are like protect a traditional family, uh, you know, men and women getting married. Um, you know, we got to have family values. Um, you know, we got to teach our kids the right way. What I try to show in the book is that 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 whole discourse comes from exactly what you just talked about. It comes from a desire to keep churches and schools segregated. And the idea that you would attack my family values is really an idea generated from people with deeply racist motivations. And it seeps in like, and you're like, well, what about, okay, that's the fifties. That's the sixties. What about the eighties, the nineties? And it's like, well, if we take a look at what focus on the family taught us or purity culture taught us, there are deep racial overtones there about purity and mixing and unequally yoked and um, not not getting sort of tied uh, with somebody who's not part of your culture and renewing the nation through your family, right? And I, I do this in the book, but basically try to show that there is a racial project behind family values. And that could be in 1950, that could be in 2023, but it, it hasn't really changed much. Yeah, and in one of the connections that you you made in that regard too was the um, connection of purity culture, which you just mentioned, which yeah. I had not seen that um, through line made before, but it made so much sense because uh, purity culture most definitely is something <laughs> that I had experience with, right? Uh, I like I had a I had a freaking purity ring, dude. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah. So like, but that was really interesting. Just talking about or like how you kind of tried to outline and show that the purity not just of like an individual but also was trying to create like an ideal like pure christian body which was like yeah. white yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cisgender the kind of thing that that was really interesting so you know one of the arguments i'm making is that christian nationalism is the original purity culture and it's like well what do you mean it's like well if the Christian nationalist wants a country that in their like ideal vision is filled with people who are white, Christian, native born, they speak English, they are patriarchal, whether that's their patriarchal men, strong men, or their women who are willing to submit to patriarchy, right? So when they envision the United States, if they made a sculpture of the United States, it would be that kind of body, right? That white, Christian, patriarchal, native born uh, body, okay? So then what do you do with, with purity culture? You tell young teenagers, mainly white teenagers, hey, if you can stay pure, not have sex before you get married, only, only uh, wait for that person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. If you can build a family based on um, those values, then you'll be blessed and you know, you'll, you'll do uh, great as a Christian and blah, blah, blah. But, but, but also, also, also. You will renew the nation. You will save America because one of the reasons America is going downhill is because we've lost our nuclear family. There's all these divorces. There's all these sexual revolution. There's all this people just doing whatever they want, right? What kind of families do they want you to build? They want you to build families that are Christian, patriarchal, right? Man's in charge, complementarianism and all that stuff. They want you to build ones that are uh, not unequally yoked. And so that might mean, mm, you know, subtly, not ones that are interracial, not ones that are mixing cultures, right? And ones that are going to renew America 
by creating the right kinds of families. So my thesis is you project all the desires of Christian nationalism onto white Christian teenagers in the 90s and the 2000s. And you hope that it renews America into the America you want rather than this America that is full of gender and sexual diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, independent women, autonomous women, marriages that are based on equality, not not subjection, on and on and on and on and on, right? And so I, I think there is a link there for sure. Oh, man. Yeah, that one, that, like, I remember reading that and, like, uh, like just la- laughing out loud in, like, as I was sitting there reading it, not be- because I was like, oh, this is hilarious, but just because <laughs> it was like, oh, my goodness, like, this makes so much sense. Um, and so I don't know. I, I am quite a fan of that uh, thesis. Um, yeah, and it just, I don't know. I think... <laughs> What's interesting to me too is like when it comes to like this the language and again back to subtlety. One thing that I think um, the Republican Party does very well that I don't think Democrats do a good job of is their use of language. They take words and phrases and they define them and tell you what they mean, <laughs> even if yeah. that's not. Yep. Or you know they have like the you know phrases that are almost I guess like dog whistles. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and so like they can say it, and the people that you know they're trying to speak to can hear it, and then they have you know they can deny like oh I never said anything racist. Yeah. yeah. Um. When they did, and so I think that all like feels like it's in play with this kind of conversation. No, I I agree, and I think I think you're right. There's. Um, there's a real ability to fo- hone in on words uh, and sort of create either a negative or positive tone around them, right? So, you know, you walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you think we should teach CRT in our school? And they're like, no way. That's terrible. I can't believe that. And then you say, well, what is CRT? And they're like, I don't really know, but I know it's bad, you know? And it's because that word has been given a negative tone, whether it's through Fox News or through church or whatever. And so I agree with you. Um, You know, I think there's also a real sense of using dog whistles positively, right? Um, One of the stories I always tell people is that, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, there was um, protests and and the Mets uh, had a game and were both sides, the Mets and their opponent uh, in the, in, up in New York at at the baseball, uh, part of a baseball game, they all protested. So all the coaches, all the players, everybody's kneeling, right? One guy doesn't kneel. Okay. And he's a white dude. He's a pitcher. And after the game, they're like, you know, yo, you didn't kneel. What, what's up? And he's like, oh, I'm a Christian. I can't kneel. And and in that moment, the reporter's like, uh, what do I say? Because if I say, well, who cares? I'm going to be like on Fox News, like the guy who hates God, right? If, I, if I'm the reporter and I say that. So they leave it alone. Well, a couple of weeks later, somebody, you know, asked him like, hey, you know, you said you were a Christian. What church do you go to? And he says, I don't go to church. I haven't gone to church in a long time. So when he said, I'm a Christian, I can't kneel. It was a it was a code word. It was, I'm not going to kneel for the murder of a black man. If he had said, I'm I'm a Christian, or if he had said, I don't care about black people, he's probably out of the the league. If he had said, I'm a white nationalist, probably out of the league. If he had said something like that, he's going to get so much flack. He's going to get suspended. Blah blah blah. But if he says, I'm a Christian, what are you going to do? So it's a really good. Po, you know what Samuel Perry would call a positive dog whistle, right? Yeah, that that's interesting. I think that um, also, I guess, kind of ties into 
um, something else that you talk about in the the book that you know language heavily influences, which is like the um, you call them like I want to use your word uh, like real delusions. Ah, yeah, um, yeah, which is interesting to me because I think <laughs> I don't know if it's ingenious or what, but Donald Trump literally was able to completely make like everything wishy-washy and completely destroy trust in anything and everything and then promote and come up with these stories and these ideas um you know you talk more about like myths and stuff in the book and the power of of myth um but the delusion bit is so interesting to me because a lot of the time in at least in my um personal experiences, a lot of the people that buy into and promote the different kind of delusions or what I would call a delusion are the same people that are also telling me like, I need to do my own research. I need to stop listening to the, you know, this, the news or this or whatever. But it's, it's almost like if they do those things, it's okay. (laughs) So I don't know that that's interesting to me. I, I, I agree. And I think, I think this all comes down to authority. Right. And so I think a lot of what's at play when um, when when Christians are drawn into conspiracy theories is they want an explanation of what's happening that makes sense to them in a way that puts them on the right side of history and in power. Right. And so the the data shows us that like 80 percent of white evangelicals are somehow supportive of QAnon. OK. Or other conspiracy theories. So what's happening there? My argument would be, if I'm the person who thinks that Christianity should be privileged in the country, if I think I'm the real American, and all of a sudden I have a Jewish doctor or a South Asian uh, um, um, medical practitioner or uh, a black politician or an immigrant politician or whoever it is telling me things about COVID, about vaccines, about whatever. I think what that's going to trigger is like, you don't have the authority to do that. I'm going to do my own research means I'm going to go to find somebody who has the authority to tell me what's real and, and actual. And then we're going to come back and we're going to tell you what's real and actual because we have the right to do that. Not you. You're not the real American. You're not the person who's supposed to be legislating all this. We are. So you should do your own research means you should find a different authority who's actually trustworthy like your pastor, like some podcaster, like some YouTube channel uh, that supports the things you want to hear as it comes to uh, being you know, in the place you are in the country, as opposed to those supposed elites or those supposed um, you know, other folks that think that they have all the knowledge and all the know-how. Nope. We're going to show them who's actually in charge. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think too, it's almost like the, um, like this idea of like, like secret knowledge basically. Yeah. And somehow yes. having access to the secret knowledge. Um, cause I think it was shown like Dan, my buddy, Dan, I mentioned earlier, he did a, a podcast episode a while back on you have permission, um, where he talked to somebody who studies things like conspiracy theories and being like being a Christian makes you more predisposed to accepting conspiracy theories yeah and i think for a lot of the same re- like the it's the secret knowledge bit like you're talking yeah. about um i think you mentioned if i remember correctly in your book you did talk about like 
um, like rap, some rapture theology yeah. and like yeah. your own experience with that. And, you know, having that insider, you know, those uh, small, those small groups uh, that you talked about going to. And um, so that's really, that's deeply interesting. Um, yeah. No, I, I definitely, you know, was a teenager who was really into like the end times, you know, I would read the book of revelation. I wanted to know, is it going to be a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, you know, all these debates. And the argument I would make is like, like I would like, Josh, I would literally walk around and think, you know, there's this, like, I'm older than you. Right. And back in the day, it was like, they're going to form the EU, you know, the European union. And I'd be like, this is a, this is a sign of the new world order. Right. And whoever is the leader of the EU is probably the antichrist. Okay. And whoever's the antichrist is probably going to get us to like put a chip in our arm so they can control us, you know? And there was no evidence. There was no data. There was no like reason to believe any of this, but this is what we would talk about in Bible study. So if this is what you're talking about in Bible study, and then someone comes up to you and says, Hey, there's this cabal of elites who are like controlling the world, you know, and they, uh, they hate children and some of them even eat children. You're already primed to be like, well, could be true. That sounds, you know, that could be right. Uh, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. Right. You're already like have the, the muscles that are like ready to be like, yeah, I think that's, I know. Yep. I know how this game goes. Let's do it. Right. And I think that's why you get so many evangelicals and others uh, who buy into conspiracy theories, it's because you already have the muscle memory. And it's, it's also too, it's like this idea of um, like, you know, we, we're trying, you know, it's positive that the rapture is going to happen yeah. because then Christ is returning. So we're pushing towards that. And so then to your point earlier about like the entanglement of like the, the politics and religion, um, if that, if you're trying to have, you know, the rapture or something like that happen, then you can, you'll be motivated to want to gain political power in order to help those things, you know, right? So then it's like, yeah, climate change, we can't take care of climate change. That's a good thing because, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever. So yeah, it's all, um, I, it's I, all I remember <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was sitting at this family barbecue one time when I was like 21. Right. And I'm watching TV. Like it's one of those barbecues where like, there's a lot of noise and kids and stuff. So you go inside for a minute and you sit on the couch and there's like news on and like, this this cousin sits next to me, you know, and he's like, we're watching the news and it's like earthquake hits this part of the world, killing thousands, you know, and dude turns to me and he's like, wow, great news, huh? And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, that earthquake killed like thousands of people. That means Jesus is coming back soon. And I remember I had this moment where I was like, man, your theology says that we should celebrate thousands of people that just died because of an earth, including children because of an earthquake. This is a weird theology. I don't think I can do this. Like that's that's really messed up to think that children dying. And he was like super like cheery about it. He was like, "Yeah, good news, am I right, man?" You know, in that like real Christian tone, you know, like, "Good news, am I right, bro?" And I'm like, "Uh, I'm going to get a I'm going to get a coke. I'm going to just take a walk." All right. See you. You know what I mean? Anyway. So, this kind of yeah. goes along with your point, you know. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, that's crazy. I've Ah, oh, man, I guess what's interesting, too, is the like for me, a lot of the like the rapture theology and stuff is something that's like very almost like distinct and unique to like American evangelical Christianity. 
And which makes sense then um, if it's also then a tool of white Christian nationalism. Because it it like I think rapture theology and stuff, at least a lot of how I was taught, it centers America. Yeah. Um, like America is the new Israel or we're the shiny yeah. city on the hill, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, then, of course, they just constantly like reinforce <laughs> one another back and forth. Here, well, here's the other thing it does that I think is really important, right, is that. You know, when I, when I, so I converted at 14, I wasn't like a church kid growing up. And so when I learned, right, when they, when they told me like, Hey, if you die and you don't know Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And in my head, I was like, okay, that's bad. So they were like, we got to tell everyone we can about Jesus, you know? So as, as a kid, I, I mean, a kid, I mean like 15, 16 years old, I was like, we should just be telling everyone about Jesus because like Jesus could return soon or people are going to die and they're going to go to hell forever. Right. So like my mom asked me when I was 16, like, what do you want for Christmas? And I was like, nothing. I want you to buy Bibles for people in Nepal. And she was like, okay, you know, here's my point is I was taught to be in emergency mode all the time. Like if you don't go share your faith with that kid in your English class, he might die tomorrow and he will go to hell. So you should probably do that. Like you should be in emergency mode all the time. What, what happens now is that emergency mode is transitioned into politics. Well, if we don't act soon, America's going to burn. It's going down. So if Joe Biden's president, America will burn and you'll never see it again. So we need, we need to storm the Capitol and put Trump in, or we need to do everything we can because if, if it's Joe Biden, rapture time for America, say goodbye. And I think when you're, you're used to being in emergency mode all the time, you can kind of get addicted to it and you can kind of convince yourself, yeah, who cares about democracy? Who cares about this fair election? Let's just get what we want because we got to do this and save the place. It's on fire. Get everybody out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, yeah. I, I mean, too, that's been like, that's always, <laughs> always the rhetoric too, right? Is the, kind of like for lack of a better term like the fire and brimstone but yeah. just politics version yep um hmm so what all right i have two i have two more questions i want to ask you um one just has to do with um just the insurrection so the you know the january 6th bit i remember kind of uh like having I was on my phone or something and saw like a live video on Facebook or something like that. And at first I thought it was like a joke. I was like, what's like the cast storm in the Capitol. And then like watching it progress, um, just, it was weird. It didn't feel real. Um, especially then to see like, you know, the gallows go up and, then like Jesus flags, <laughs> all, all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. It was just like deeply just like shocking to me. And so I guess like what, cause you know, that's, that's kind of the, you know, your experience of that was the, the kind of the catalyst for writing this. So like, what, what was that experience like for you? And I don't know. I don't really know. I just, I guess I'm, I'm just deeply interested in, on your perspective here. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, I, I think I thought like, maybe I would have been there if I had stayed in the movement. And I also think like, you know, I, I think about, you know, people your age and younger, right. Who are like, 
I became a Christian in 2016 or 17. And, and when I became a Christian, I learned about the Bible. I learned about the new Testament. I learned about Christ. I learned about the rapture, but if you converted in 2017 or 18, maybe you heard about QAnon and maybe you heard about like, you know, uh, later on the big lie and all this stuff. So I thought about all those people who converted and were, were brought into spaces that included all of this stuff about conspiracies and violence and spiritual warfare. And I, and I instantly thought like, if they were as devoted as I was, they would have been convinced that going to January 6th was the right thing to do. And so that's what I thought, you know what I mean? Is like, this isn't an accident. This has been, this has been moving this way for a long time. Yeah. I, <laughs> what was interesting too, for me is like, I then later found out that like my aunt was there. <laughs> like, And that was, uh, I, I don't know. And like, you know, she is always sending my grandmother like ridiculous stuff but like she is so heavily deeply bought into it yeah um yep. to the point where like on the spectrum you know as we we talked about earlier she's definitely on the more extreme aspect of that yeah yeah um of the spectrum which is um that's I hard yeah less than great but i don't really talk to her because um she thinks that i'm like crazy and evil and not a real christian so yeah she blocked yeah. me on everything <laughs> that's usually what happens with, yeah yeah all right, well, I guess so. Um, final thing to kind of uh help wrap us up here. I think for a lot of people, the insurrection seemed to be like like okay, boom, this thing happened, and now like you know, Donald Trump's not the president, things are kind of you know fizzling out. We made it through. So glad that's done. Um, but now, you know, recently uh Trump announced he's running again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, there's, you know, a whole bunch of craziness going on within the Republican party because of that. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, moving forward, uh, you kind of, you know, put out that this was maybe the start of something and not necessarily the end. Um, yeah. where do you see things going? Well, I, I think that if we don't hold the people who incited the, the riot accountable, then it will be the beginning because people have already started to look at it as the first major event and in, in what they take to be a long conflict. I also think that if you read the book, you know that this is not a group who's like, well, we didn't do as well as we wanted in the, in the midterm. So I guess we'll just give up and get a new hobby. I mean, they're just going to keep fighting. They're going to keep pushing. So what I see next is, you know, we already see it. Uh, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida is is doing all kinds of things when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to uh, COVID stuff, uh, education, migration. Donald Trump announced last night if he was president again, he would ban uh, care for transgender youth and he would put people in jail. Um, you know, we see uh, in North Carolina, a power grid got taken out because of Drag Queen Story Hour. And um, so it, it's easy to think, well, we haven't had a big thing or the thing like January 6th. I think that's the wrong metric. I think there are there are this is all still boiling. It's all still brewing. You can see it in Congress. You can see it in local elections and actions. So, I think what's next is just more facing and and fighting uh, what I take to be a threat to democracy. Yeah, and that's I don't know. That's the I guess the more scary aspect to me um, is the threat to democracy because ultimately, like I don't. I don't know how it turns out positively. Mm -hmm. Like say, 
the more Christian nationalist type people um, actually, you know, fully take over, so to speak, and then start enforcing all this stuff. Like that's not going to be good. (laughs) And I think, you know, but also um, it's at the same time, just completely destroying and tearing everything apart, including, uh, you know, regular people that aren't politicians and people like me who try to stumble through interviews about politics. (laughs) That's not something that's necessarily, uh, my my strong suit um i'd much rather talk about or like more comfortable to talk about like nerdy like process theology and, <laughs> and like i can do that all day um so i appreciate you uh putting up with me um, no no oh no stop i mean i agree and i just i i i just want to say like it it feels dire but you know what we all we can do is keep like is all we can do is keep moving you know, yeah. if the arc of the yeah. universe bends towards justice, we just have to keep walking that way. Right. And, you know, uh, if you would have sold somebody in 1960 that pretty soon there'd be a civil rights movement that would change everything. There would be a voting rights act. There would be uh, massive uh, advancements for women's independence and and um, and autonomy, birth control and so on. Somebody, a lot of people in 1960 would be like, no, no, no way. And so I think we just need to keep that in mind. Like history is not destiny and we can, right. we just have to keep marching and towards justice. And that's not easy, but that's what we can do, you know? So um, that's what I would encourage people to to keep in mind. Right on. Yeah. And I, as you're, as you're speaking there too, just a thought came to mind. Um, just like almost, I feel like when, uh, especially i don't know like in movies and stuff which i know we're talking about real life but when power is someone is losing power then as things start to get you know worse and worse for them they become louder and louder and more aggressive and in your face and so we could potentially also be seeing like like the flip side of it the opposite of it where actually this is a dying movement you know screaming out trying to take down everything um, that it can, yep. and then something more beautiful, like you know, a new civil rights movement or whatever you want to call it, can be birthed out of that kind of. Uh, totally, yep, totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's, I, and I think that's something that people should keep in mind, right? Don't, d- don't, don't let some despair stop you. Just keep going towards what you know is right, and 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 that, and keep that faith. If we're going to rethink faith, that's faith. Just keep going. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Right on. Cool, man. Well, this, uh, Bradley, this was a lot of fun. Um, I appreciate it. I like our conversation and, um, I don't know. I'd be down to to hang out and, and chat again sometime. Um, we do some yeah. fun, like patron exclusive stuff. Uh, could be cool or whatever. Um, no, th- th- thanks for, <laughs> I mean, first thing, thanks for inviting me and, um, yeah. next time we'll talk theology and we'll talk, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll talk open theology or process theology or or whatever you want to do. And um, uh, just appreciate you having me. And yeah, thanks for reading the book, you know, Preparing for War. That's the book. So check it out if you can, folks. And, um, yeah. you know, yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, uh, thanks for a great talk. Appreciate it. Yeah, man, for sure. I'll be I'll uh, I'll link things like, you know, I'll link your book uh, in okay. the show notes. Um, yeah. And like your uh, Instagram or like um I could link straight white American Jesus, whatever. Like, what kind of is there anything else that would be important? No, we're on social media. We're at Straight White JC. We publish our show three times a week. We talk about all this stuff all the time. So, you know, we talk about all the politics and 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 religion. So you don't have to have to. You know, we can we can <laughs> right. be, we can 
we can be your decoder ring for that. And uh, uh, we also talk about deconstruction and other stuff. So, um, so check that out. And but yeah, that's straight white JC. That's where you'll find us. Sweet, good deal. And uh, yeah, listeners, uh, as always, thanks for hanging out and go in peace, guys. All right. <laughs>